All right, let's get started. If you haven't met me, my name's Stuart. Very warm welcome to Real Life Church. If you've got a Bible, could you grab it and turn to Proverbs chapter 6? Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to be continuing on our uh, sermon series through the book of Proverbs. Before we get to that, I just want you to think about, cast your mind back over the years. And have you ever been through an experience where you thought it was going to be pretty epic, but it turned out to be a bit of a disappointment? I've had this, I've recently had to revisit this since having children. And one of these things that I remember living through as a child, I'm now living through as a parent on behalf of my child, something that I thought was going to be pretty great, and then turns out to be, generally speaking, a rather massive disappointment. And that is the saga of a kinder egg. When you're young and you see these things in the shops, they, they promise so much. They have their chocolate eggs, so you're on a winner to start with. In fact, it's not just a chocolate egg, it's two types of chocolate. There's milk chocolate on the outside, and inside there's the white chocolate, which is like, so you get double choc egg. And inside the egg, there is a surprise, which comes with the name. And it's a toy of some description. And I remember these from my youth. And now I've got two boys who absolutely love kinder eggs. It's one of those things if we're out and they see them in the shops or you take them to the shop and they say, Daddy, can we have a kinder egg? And having lived through this experience, I'm trying to communicate to them. There's a toy inside, but let's be honest. It's rubbish. It is this cheap plastic piece of tat that, that doesn't fit together properly. If it does fit, it will break, and it's just it's generally not good. And I'm in the shop with them, and they say they want a they want a kinder. And I'm saying there is a bar of chocolate here that is cheaper and has way more chocolate in it, and you're going to get more for your money with that, with the experience of that. Why don't you have that instead? No, daddy, no, daddy. We want the Kinder Egg. We want the toy inside. And so they always win, and they say no, no, no. They won't be convinced. They want to go there. They say, I am your father. I, I am wise. I know these things. I've lived through this. I'm telling you what is better. And they said, no, no. We definitely have the Kinder Egg. So they get the Kinder Egg, and they open it up, and they eat the chocolate, and they build the tat, and it usually breaks fairly quick, and then goes into a box we have in the corner of our playroom called the box of tat, which just is full of cheap plastic toot. They picked up from party bags and kinder eggs over the years. But it's, it promises much, a kinder egg, but it delivers very little in the reality. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in Proverbs. Something that promises much, but in turn actually delivers very little. Now, the book of Proverbs so far, we've uh, learned that it's the words of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived outside Jesus. He was blessed by God with great wisdom to lead the people of God. He wrote it down. And the book is interesting because it's all about the nitty-gritty of life. It's about how to do life on the day-to-day and how to do it well. Advice about really practical, down-to-earth things. And it's to live life the way God intended. And the the, the key we saw right at the beginning was the fear of the Lord. That's this refrain that keeps coming up again and again all the way through the book. The fear of the Lord. You have to to live life well. It's not just a case of doing certain things and not doing certain other things. It's actually a turn of living it in light of who God is and who God's called you to be. And who is? And he's the creator of everything. And he's made you to be part of this world. And he's designed this world. And there's certain ways to live and certain ways not to live to make it all work. And for you to be satisfied and fulfilled. And behind the book of Proverbs, behind the words of Solomon, is God himself calling people, saying, listen to my words. And your life will go well. Your life will go better. And what we saw 
a couple of weeks back, I did a um, sermon on chapter 5, where after all this calling and saying, listen to me, listen to me, Solomon is saying, he come and dealt with the whole area of sex and how important that is. And then we had a break when Jeremy dealt with the beginning of chapter 6, where it went on to very practical things about money and unity. And now he's actually, he's circled back round to this same subject of sex and intimacy and temptation. And chapter 5, we found that there was an encouragement for sexual intimacy in marriage between one man, one woman for life. That's where it should be, and it should be enjoyed and encouraged. And actually, taking it outside of there was actually not a good thing. But now we come to the back end of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, and he returns to this subject with quite a lengthy kind of exposition of it. So we're going to come back and look at it a little bit more today. So if you've got your Bible, we'll start at... Chapter 6, verse 20, and it should appear on the screen behind as I read. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price for prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not get scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He does it, it, destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts." My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from, Egypt, from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take a fill of our love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come again. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. 
Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray from into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a, mar- a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Okay, big idea today. Giving into sexual temptation leads to disaster. Giving into sexual temptation leads to disaster. Okay, we've got this character uh, turned again. She turned up in chapter 5, the, the character of the adulteress, which is a female kind of personification of um, kind of the bad things we do with sex. And we talked about this last time. This isn't to do with, it's not a girl issue. The character happens to be female. The person in the story is a man talking to his son. That's the way it's been laid out by Solomon. But actually, it's not a female issue. It's a male-female issue. So even though we read it as a a girl, actually, this is applicable to all of us, regardless of of our gender. So we need to take that on board as we look part. We're going to look at two things today. Basically, there's the consequences of sexual folly, which comes up first. And then we're going to look at the strategy of sexual temptation. So we're going to look at what it means to give into it, particularly in the area of adultery, but it's applicable wider. But actually, what are the, also, what are the ways that we are tempted? How does temptation come to us? How can we stand up against it as a result of that? And I appreciate when we talk about this area, we've all failed in it, haven't we? We've all made mistakes in this area in one form or another. You may feel your mistakes are greater than others, and you might feel a sense of shame about it. And I appreciate this might be hard for some of you in how it's affected your life or life of people you know or or family and friends. But we need to still look at what the Bible says and see if we can learn and move forward from it. So first of all, the consequences of sexual folly. I'm not going to deal with just the first two bits of each chapter or each section. I'll come back to those at the end. But we're going to look at the consequences. We're going to sort of jump in about verse 25. Okay? Verse 25. And... When we look at the whole idea of sexual folly, making mistakes in this area, particularly in the area of adultery, sleeping with someone who is not your spouse, where does it begin? It says there, it begins in your heart. It begins with the heart. And the heart, we found out that when the biblical image of the heart isn't just the muscle in your body, it's the center of who you are, your mind, your will, your emotions, your decision-making, everything about who you are is summed up in the heart. And it says there in verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Don't even start thinking about it. Don't even go there in your mind. Don't even start, before you actually get to the point of actually doing anything, don't even go there in your head, in your heart, in your emotions. And this dovetails nicely with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, so that's a hard action, has already committed adultery in her heart. So it begins with the heart, begins with our attitude, what we're thinking about. And we've already seen in Proverbs that we can govern our heart, we have control over it, we have, we have a kind of a say in what we're thinking, what we're dwelling on, and it begins with don't even start thinking about it. Don't even start dwelling on that idea of actually, oh, someone else will be better in this area, or something else will be better. I'd rather be with him rather than him. I'd rather be with her over there rather than with my wife. All these kind of things. Don't even start dwelling on it. Don't even start thinking about it. Don't even let it happen because it will lead somewhere. And the consequences, the way it describes it in this back end of chapter 6 is horrific. There are three things that what will happen if you do this. The, the consequences, they will be, number one, they will be severe. They will be totally severe. It says here in um, verse 26, it, it uses two negative things to try and create a positive point, which is a little bit unusual. Because it says, if you go and sit with a prostitute, it costs you a loaf of bread. 
But if you commit adultery, it costs you your life. So in one sense it's saying, well actually you're better off sleeping with a prostitute, but it's not saying that, because they're both bad. But it's actually just making that contrast. They're both bad, but, so you shouldn't do either, but actually when you contrast them together, one costs a loaf of bread, the other one costs your, your life. It's saying there is a severe consequence for this. Going to a prostitute costs a fee of some sort, but actually committing adultery costs something way more. The breaking of marriage vows, breaking of that covenant, breaking of the heart of your spouse, the other person involved, destroying the home. What about if there are children involved? Destroying the children and their view of marriage and their view of you as parents and everything that's going on. It's saying the consequences of sexual folly going down this road are so severe. Do never underestimate them. Don't think it's going to be okay. It's not. It's going to be horrible. The next thing he says is that it's inevitable. It's not will it, won't it. Could it happen? Are we going to get away there? So it's inevitable. And he uses the fire as an illustration. And there are two questions he, are, he asks. And the, the answer kind of isn't given, but it's obvious what it is. Can you hold fire next to your chest without burning your clothes? No. No, you can't. You just can't do that. You can't. If you're holding fire here, a torch, it's going to burn you. And the same thing, if you walk on hot coals, and the coals I've been describing ones that have been used for cooking, for roasting, or even melting metals, so they're like proper hot. If you walk on them, are you going to burn your feet? Or can you not burn your feet? No, the answer is, of course you're going to get burned. It's ridiculous. Holding fire, doing that with you, you're going to get burned. There is an inevitability for if you give in, if you do that down this run, you're going to get a severe punishment, and it's inevitable. It will happen. It might not happen straight away. You might think, oh, I got away with it, but it's coming. You're not going to get through this unscathed. And then the last thing it says is unending, which is terrifying when we think about it. And it uses this image, again, kind of negative images to create a positive point. It talks about the thief. And the thief, if a thief steals food because he's hungry, it's not right theft, but actually it's understandable. The guy's hungry, so he, he, he takes some food to feed himself. He says, actually, it's not, it's not right. We know we shouldn't steal, but actually you can understand it. You can kind of, kind of empathize, sympathize with them. But, it says, uh, but the thief who's stolen to, to get the food, he says, he'll still have to pay it back. and have to pay back the money, sometimes more than that, to pay back the compensation, make restitution. If he's caught, what's going to happen? And he says, but actually, if you commit adultery... Actually, it, the consequences is way worse. You actually destroy yourself. His wounds, and it says dishonor, and it says his disgrace will not be wiped away. If you give in to the sexual hunger, people won't understand. People won't say that's okay. People won't forget. And actually, you can't pay back what you've taken. Unlike the thief, you can't pay it back. It's, it, you've done something that is irreparable. Even if you offer compensation, it says the wounded spouse is not gonna, they're not going to take it. They're not going to take it. It's something that's just going to go on and on and on and on. The shame of what you've done, the dishonor of what you've done, the pain of what you've done, it will not go away. And it's good for us, I think, actually, as almost to dwell on these consequences. Dwell on these things. There's some stuff in the Bible that, frankly, isn't nice to read. We like the bits where it says, God loves me, and he's, he's, he's always listening to me, and he's with me wherever I go. That's wonderful. We love reading those stuff. 
The stuff where it says, if you mess up in this area, you're gonna, it's going to be horrible. This is what it is. This is warning after warning after warning. And the father's saying to his son, don't even go there. Don't even go there. I will let me lay out what's going to happen to you if you do this. It's something that's going to be on you and it's going to last with you and it's going to be pain in your family. And I don't know if you've ever come across this. I've dealt with people in situations like this. Things that happen years, even decades ago, there's still that stigma that just lasts. This is what happened. This is what happened in their life, the life of their family. It's pretty horrible. But he's saying, if you lay out the consequences and you think about them, hopefully they should act as a deterrent for you for the future. So there, he's laid out to his son very, very kind of plainly, bluntly, this is what's going to happen if you play in this area. And if we move on to the next section, beginning of chapter 7, it talks about the strategies of sexual temptation. If, if we're going to avoid this, we know it's really bad. All right, okay, I'm not going to, I get that. I've seen the skull and crossbones image on there. You know, this can kill. I want to stay away from it. But the reality is we live in a world, we will get tempted. How does temptation come to us? How does it get us? How does it kind of lead us down that path? Because no one willingly really in their right mind, says, yes, I want to be, have a severe, inevitable, unending pain in my life. Please, can I have that? No one does that. But yet, so many people fall for it. So how does temptation go about getting it? So if we go into chapter 7, we look at verse 6. This is the father again talking to his son. And he says, he says to his son, he says, from the window of my house, I look out through the lattice. It's probably an upstairs room in the house. He's looking out, observing the people he sees, and he see, I've seen among the simple, <laughs> gullible, ignorant. That's how he's destroying it. And he, he's actually talking about the young, but I've, I don't know about you. I mean, I've seen young people who are gullible, but I don't think it's the monopoly of the young, is it? We get over, we can still be like that sometimes. But he's saying, actually, there are people who are ignorant. And temptation traps the ignorant. It traps the ignorant. It traps those who who are not thinking about it, who haven't made a commitment to wisdom. If you put this in the context of where we're going through Proverbs, first nine chapters are an extended introduction. We're in the beginning of chapter 7. So there's a whole lot of stuff that's come before about being committed to wisdom. Learning it is open to everyone, but you've got to treat it like precious jewels where you hold on to it. You've got to listen to its voice. You've got to follow its path. You've got to be committed. These are people he's talking about who clearly haven't done that. They've got no fear of the Lord. They don't care. They're not interested in that, which makes them ignorant. It makes them gullible. They've ignored everything that's happened up till now at this point in the book. They've, they weren't listening. They weren't listening to the words of Solomon. They're saying, no, we're not there. It traps the ignorant. And if you're not aware of the consequences, if you're not aware of what could happen, that makes you the ignorant one. You're the gullible one. And temptation will come for you and get you because you're not thinking about it. Or even if you're thinking, oh, it couldn't possibly get me. It doesn't apply to me. Or even you haven't thought about the consequences. It's after you. So it traps the ignorance. What else does it do? It takes you where you should not be. What does the father say about the person he sees? He's lacking sense, this gullible person he's observed. He's a pass along the street corner near, sorry, near the street near who? Near her corner. Who's that her? That'll be this woman, the adulteress, this, this figure, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. So it's a time of, it's the evening, it's night, things are getting dark, everything's closing down. Where should he be? He should be at home. He should be with his family, his friends, his community. His people, that's where he's be. that's his safety. It's getting dark outside. There's no street lights like we have it. There's nowhere to, no, where, why are you out there? You shouldn't be out there. There's nothing out there, only bad stuff. 
You're in the wrong place. Where should you be is at home with your family, with your friends, with your community, with your people who know you and love you, and I will help you keep on the strange. But because he's ignorant, he's not thinking he's stupid. He's in the wrong place. And that's what temptation does. It takes you to places you shouldn't be. You find yourself in places you shouldn't be, talking to people you shouldn't be talking to, dealing with situations you shouldn't be dealing with, when you should be at home with friends in the community of God's people, where where it's safe, where you get looked after. People are looking out for you. So he's been taken to where it is. And what, what else we hear about temptation? It's relentless, especially if you failed in the first two. If you're dumb and in the wrong place, oh, it's coming for you. It's coming for you. But temptation is relentless. It's, it's, it's always around us. It's always coming after us. And this, this, this woman is the kind of the personification of that. She's dressed as a prostitute. You know, use your imagination of what that means. So she's kind of all, all up for it. Wily of heart. She's guarded. She's guarded. She's after this guy. She knows she's got motives, but she's guarded about it. So she's loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wake. She is a predator out to get him. It's running after you. Temptations do that. She's searching for prey. It says um, she seizes him and kisses him. That's pretty quiet in your face. With bold face, she says to him. I read in the commentaries, bold face reference is actually like a bold face lie. She's, li- she's willing to tell lies. She'll come after him, tell lies. She sees a gift and she says, I had to offer sacrifices. So sometimes, relentless, it can even have a religious veneer. Reference there to the, the, the pagan cults around at the time. Sacrifices had a lot of sex as part of their, their rites and rituals. I've come to meet you. It tells you, oh, you're the only one. You're the one. It's coming after. It's all about you. It makes you the center. It's after you, after you, after you. And she's saying, I, I wanted you. So it's relentless. It doesn't stop. She's out searching. She's looking. Temptation is coming for us. It's, it's relentless. It doesn't stop just because we don't like it. It's still there. Then it promises big, really big. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Soft bed, smells great. This is the place you want to be. My boudoir is ready, decked out in something very attractive. This is going to be great. We're going to have lots of good things. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning and delight one another with our love. Come with me. We're going to have absolutely great sex. It's going to be the best sex you've ever had. This is going to be absolutely wonderful, totally gratifying, nothing like it. It takes you basically to the realms of fantasy. But it's promising really big. Promising really big. And the reality of temptation, obviously, it can sometimes be like that at first. This is really, really good. This is going so well. This is epic. But then actually, there's a hideous truth coming which we've already seen some of the consequences so it promises big and the last thing way more obviously sinister it loves secrecy for my husband is not at home he's gone on a long journey took a bag of money with him at full moon he'll come he'll never know he's not around he's away on business he's got a lot of money with him so he's going to be away for a long time to spend it to invest it to do what he's doing no one's going to know about it. You come to my place and it kind of it reflects the image of darkness we saw at the beginning where this youth was out, where he shouldn't be at night. Wrong thing. And he's saying, no, this is not where he should be. So temptation comes after us in all these ways and we need to be aware of it. But then the Father gives us a great reality check, which I like to think of as a chocolate-covered turd. 
It's the best image I could find. A chocolate-covered turd. It looks great on the outside, tastes good at first, and then not so much. What does she say afterwards? With smooth, seductive speech, she persuades him. And the smooth words compel him. So he's like, he's given in. Yes, I'll do all these things. I'll come with you. I'll be with you. And what's the image we've got there? They're pretty graphic. They're pretty grim. When we think about it, you've got the image, you've got an ox. An ox is one of the strongest animals around. It used to do the plowing, powerful, mighty animal. You've got the stag that would run free. It was fast. It was graceful. And then the bird, nothing's as free as a bird that can fly through the clear blue sky. What happens to all those animals? They're dead, slaughtered. The ox doesn't even know what's happened to it. Massive animal. It could easily just kick its way out, run over people. And it's lead, throat is slit, dead. The stag caught fast, an arrow pierces its liver, and the bird caught in a snare costs him life. It, it will kill you, this thing. It will destroy you. He, the father is giving it the most graphic kind of image he can, actually, is, is death. It's death. It's going to utterly destroy you. It'll look great at first. It might even taste good at first, but ultimately it's going to kill you. It's going to kill you. It's going to taste utterly vile to the point of making you wretch. And, and no one's immune to this. It doesn't matter how strong you are or tough you are or how spiritual you are. No one's immune to this temptation. No one thinks, oh, I've got this sorted. Two of the most powerful characters we see in the Word of God Mighty men, tough guys who'd make great heroes in action movies, completely failed in this area. King David killed Goliath, killed tens of thousands, it said. He was a warrior like scary good at what he did, led a mighty horde of men who were devastating in battle yet totally failed in the area. The other one, Samson from the book of Judges, possibly the strongest man who ever lived. If you read some of his feats when the power of God came on him, what he did completely undone in this area that literally for him led to his death um, at the hands of the Philistines. Totally, totally destructive. So sexual temptation, there's some kind of insights into how it gets you and then the horrible results at the end. But then for us, how do we face this? What do we, <laughs> what do, we do in this? Hopefully, well, maybe you're a bit feeling on the lower end of the spectrum right now. Thought we hear good news today, too. Well, let's talk about kind of how do we face this? How do we how do we deal with? It? There's a painted a picture, and sometimes we need to hear sobering pictures. We need to be pictures that bring us up short and say, "Okay, this is reality. What are we going to do about this?" Well, I've got some thoughts that I want to just share with you. Um, things from the past I've seen that hopefully will give us some insight. The first one: we need to be born again and filled with the Spirit. We need to be born again and filled with the Spirit. If you look back at the beginning of the section. Chapter 6, verse 20, and those few verses, and then beginning of chapter 7, verse, verse um, chapter 7, verses, the first few verses. If you read them, effectively what you're reading is an Old Testament version of what it means to be born again. Born again is a, a New Testament phrase from the words of Jesus in Chom chapter 3, telling us if we're going to enter the God's kingdom, we need to be born again. We need to be made anew. We were dead, it says, in our trespasses and sins. We need to be made alive in Christ. This is what happens when you become a Christian. That's why people use that phrase. But actually, if you look before that was said, we have these Old Testament kind of words to this. And actually, it talks about all sorts of things. It talks about taking these words and binding them on your heart. Putting them right inside you. Letting the words of God come and actually run in you. Because external law is 
is okay, it's good, we had the law, we'd seen the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, they had the law, and it says the law is good, perfect, and right. There's nothing wrong with the law, but actually because it's an external law, it has no power to change us. It has no power to actually change us who we are, change our actions. When it says things like, you shall not commit adultery, you know that's good and right, yeah, we won't do that, but it has no power to actually change us. What we have written here is actually hinting to what we find in the New Testament, where God says, actually, I'm going to take these laws and I'm going to write them on your heart. It said in the prophet uh, Jeremiah 31, he says, I'll make a new covenant uh, with the house of Israel, declares the Lord, and I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And that's what it's hinting to. It's saying, actually, we need to take this on, and we need to put it inside us. It talks about, um, what is that, verse 22? It says, when you walk, they will be led. I will lie down with you. I will watch over you. Who's the one that we know who's always with us? Who's the one who walks with us in this way? The Holy Spirit of God. As being people of God, we have the Holy Spirit of God with us all the time, reminding us, walking with us, teaching us, leading us. It talks about um, a path that we will walk on. It says, my commandment is a lamp and a teaching a light. That's Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It says the words of God are to be in us. He's saying, actually, you need to take them in you. They need to be something that's in you. And if we look at the ones in chapter 7, they, they have the same image about bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, you're my sister, an intimate friend, someone who's very close to you, someone who's really right beside you, which is what the, the Holy Spirit is, the one who draws alongside. And they will keep you from the forbidden women. So we are people who are to be born again filled with the Holy Spirit so we know the ways of God. And if you're a believer here, that's happened to you. We have a responsibility to be filled with the Spirit, it says in Ephesians, to be men and women who continually grow in our relationship with God. It's not something that happened once. It's something that, 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 and then ends. It's something that happens and then we continue, just like a relationship with a person. You meet them once, great, I like them. If I want to grow that, I need to spend more time with them and keep spending time. And if I stop, we become distant and eventually we'd lose touch and then you couldn't really class yourself as friends anymore. And we're to do that. And we're to do that. And that's where it starts. And one thing I noticed through this that it's worth dwelling on is that the Bible is God's book, and it all points to Jesus all the way through, every part of it. And all of it talks about the good news of Jesus saving us, the good news of the story. And as I reflect on it, you've got different characters in the story. And I, I felt God prompt me that actually we're in this story. We're in this story as a minor. And do you know what you like character I think we are in this story? We're the adulteress. We were the ones who were created by God to be in relationship with God. The Bible talks about the bride of Christ being his people, doesn't it? He was kind of the husband is the image. He's God, the husband. We're his people, the bride. What did we do? We rebelled and we ran away. We went after anything and everything else that wasn't him. And we'll chase after every false god and every pleasure and everything that isn't the one who made us and redeemed us. And he was the husband who came and pulled us out of the mess that we were in. We were the one over here with all the other lovers doing all the other horrible things. And God said, I will come and get you and I will save you and I will redeem you and I will clothe you in righteousness, my righteousness. And I'll get you and, uh, and you will be born again. We will start anew. And that's who we are in this story. And so we need to remember that. We can't go through this as a smug self-righteousness like we've got this. We need to remember who we were and how God saved us and how God brought us out of that. And actually we have this wonderful new husband, if you will, in Christ. 
bit strange saying that as a guy, but you know, that's what the, Bible, the image of the Bible uses. And we're the people who know that. And if you're not a believer here, that's where you stand. And I want to just challenge you on that, actually. You need to get right with God. We all know we've failed. We all know we've messed up. And you need to deal with that today before Christ. So we need to be people who are born again, filled with the Spirit. The second thing we need to do is we need to know the truth. We need to know the truth. It's not something you think, oh, we got, I prayed a prayer once. I became a Christian once. I need to know the truth. I need to dwell on the truth. What truth do we need to dwell on? First of all, we need to dwell on the consequences of messing up in this area, which we've read about today. We need to learn about the strategies, the enemy we use to trip us up, which again, we've looked about today. We need to know who we are in Christ, which takes us back to what we learned on the Freedom in Christ course. That actually, we were like that. We were that person over there doing all those things in so much mess and sin. The Bible says we were dead. We were an object of God's wrath for all the horrible things we've done. But now, we've been saved. We are holy and righteous. We can come before our Father in heaven boldly. We can make great prayers. We can sing songs of worship. We're saints, not sinners anymore. And we need to be more captivated by that truth than we are about the the lusts of the world. We need to be more captivated about what God has done in our lives than what the world can offer us in sensual pleasure or any other kind of pleasure. We need to be people who are so overwhelmed with what God has done for us and how awesome and amazing he is, what he's saved us from, what he's saved us to, who we are now, that actually temptation doesn't hold much of an allure for us because you know we've got something way better in Christ. What about if we mess up? We need to know the truth that nothing can change our position in Christ. My position is set. I'm here. I'm a child of God. I can't change it. I've been born again. I've been transformed. I am holy and righteous. Nothing can take that away from me. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. But what happens when I muck up? The enemy would want you to run away, want you to get as far away from God, far away from his people through shame and guilt and fear. But actually, when our condition changes, when we make mistakes, what do we do? We repent of our sin and we turn around. We walk the other way. We come back to God. We receive forgiveness, which is freely available. We receive cleansing from our sins and we're restored into our relationship with him we need to know these truths we need to live on these truths we need to remind ourselves of these truths regularly so when it does come we can deal with it we can move forward with it third thing we need to be open with those close to us we need to be open with those closest it makes the so important about community relationship jeremy spoke that about from the last section in in Proverbs about the importance of unity within the family, within the brotherhood. We need to be unified. We need to be together, which means we need to be open. We need to be in relationship with each other. We need to be honest with each other, which is why we push our life through and say, get connected with people. And we need to be open about where we are weak in this area, where we're failing in this area, where things are like, I'm tempted in this. I'm struggling in this area. I need to kind of, you know, deal with something. Help me out. If you know there's, even if you know you've messed up, going to someone and saying, actually, I need to get this right with God, stand with me as we walk through this together. We need to be open with those about it. They need to know us. They need to know what's going on in our lives. I said at the end of the last one, there were some questions I asked you to, to go and ask someone. There was someone particularly for husband and wives. I hope you've had that conversation. There's also one for everyone, regardless of whether you're married or not or single. And actually about where do you struggle in this area and having an honest conversation. Please have those conversations with a close friend about him. And the last one, we need to walk away. I think it did say walk away. 
I think I've, I've, I've changed my mind on that. We need to run away. <laughs> I wrote that down and thought, no, walk, stop. What, what did Joseph do with Potiphar's wife? When Potiphar, she was relentless, wasn't she? Day after day it said, sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me. Boss's wife, Joseph, just legged it. Roadrunner style. We need to run away. You know where you are in your life now. You know what's going on. You know the struggles you're facing. You know the areas of temptation because the Holy Spirit is highlighting right now as I'm speaking. I don't know what they are. You need to be radical and get out of dodge wherever that situation is. You need to be ruthless. If that literally means resigning from your job, do it because you've seen what happens if you give in to temptation. It's written plain black and white. Cut them off social media. Stop spending time with them. Stop going to that place. Stop doing that. Get rid of your devices, computers, if they're the ones that are causing you to fall. Do something radical to get rid of it and get someone to hold you to account because the consequences are horrific. You will be eating that chocolate-covered turd. I just like saying that. That's a, that's, a, that's a phrase you should take away from this. It will be a good kind of reminder of what's going on. Okay, do you want to stand? We're going to finish. I want to pray. That's been a... I just spoke to Matt before, before we um, started, and he's kind of, where are you going to end with your sermon? I said, well, how do we smoothly go into worship out of this one? Well, let me work that out as we pray, because there isn't really a handy song that we can sing that says, don't give in to sexual temptation or anything. They don't write them like that. I don't know why. They just don't. Um, but we're going we're gonna to worship Jesus. So maybe you just want to close your eyes. I feel there's that sense of everyone's after our heart. Everyone wants our heart. Everyone wants our heart to be captivated by something. Whether it's you know, sports teams or, or sexual desires or, or possessions or career advancement. God wants our heart to be captivated by Him and Him alone. He wants... He wants himself to be so precious that everything else in this world just pales into significance. And the reality is he's the only one who can truly satisfy. Everything else is empty. Everything else doesn't satisfy. It is that chocolate-colored, you know. That's what it is. And so we're going to worship now and we're going to put our eyes on Jesus and we're going to be captivated by him. Before we do that, I just want to just lead us in a time of prayer. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your truth that you've outlined to us. Lord, we want to thank you that your word contains hard stuff that we have to wrestle with and deal with and we have to kind of think about. Lord God, thank you for revealing that to us today. Thank you for your spirit on us as a people today. Lord God, I pray that you would take the truth about what it means to play out in this area of adultery and sexual sin and, and burn those consequences on our heart that we would, be, we would never forget them. They would never leave us, actually, that this is what it means. Not in a kind of a way of fear that we run in terror, but actually in a sober reminder of reality. Lord God, we thank you for what you've highlighted about the way temptation stalks us. Lord God, and we thank you that you've overcome it, that we are free from it as believers. No temptation has seized us except what is common to man and God is gracious. He will provide a way out, whatever comes. So we are, we are free from that in you, God. But I ask God you give us grace today to walk in it. Lord, and you know each of us. You know our hearts. You know our histories. You know our stories. Lord God, as to those of us facing it right now, God, I pray you give us grace to walk free. Grace to be radical. Grace to say no to it. Grace to get out. 
Lord God, I pray for those who, of us who already made mistakes in this area. Lord, I thank you that your forgiveness is real. Your forgiveness is complete. That actually we stand holy and righteous through and you said you will remember our sin no more. All we have to do is repent. Seek forgiveness, seek cleansing, Lord God. It's not held against us. Lord God, we can be free in you, and that is just beautiful. That in itself is a captivating truth that we can dwell on, of how wonderful and glorious you are, how awesome, how amazing you are. Holy Spirit, I pray you come fill us as your people now, that we would know you better today, now, than when we walked in this morning. Lord, come and do a great work in our hearts, because we need you, Lord. We need you to walk in purity, to walk in righteousness. We need you to just to kind of be your servants, be your people, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you come and fill us. Write those words on our hearts. Stay close to us as a brother. And lead us into good places with you, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus.